In today's episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast, we are talking to former pensions manager, now trustee, Chris Parrott. And welcome, everybody, to the 31st episode of VFM. Uh, I couldn't be happier, as ever, to be joined by my co-host, Darren Phillip. How are you, Darren? I'm very well, thank you, Nico. I'm very well. Um, our briefing note is obviously wrong because it's actually the 32nd episode oh, no. of, of VFM, <laughs> so we haven't actually updated it. So, <laughs> 32 um, with uh, four specials. So, so, well, so, I'm an actress, so I'm, I'm not expected to be able to count. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, great, to, great, great to be with you virtually again, um, Nico. Um, I hear you're coming back from France at the weekend. I am. I am. Um, yeah, so hopefully uh, not affected by any travel chaos or weather chaos, which seems to be two risks at the moment. But uh, yeah, no, hoping to get back in time for uh, the football. Yeah, and my, um, my my next door neighbour has been caught up, um, mm. you know, in in, in 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 some of these the the, the, the travel mess. Um, was meant to be flying back on Monday. And um, isn't be, isn't being able to sort of fly back till tomorrow, mm. um, and had to sort of pay double the price and mm. all of this, and it's just yeah, not a happy situation. Um, but we know someone who knows a bit about this, don't we, Nico? Yeah, yeah. So look, delighted today to be joined by Chris Parrott, a professional trustee at Best Trustees, and prior to that, uh, a variety of pension manager jobs, uh, including most recently Heathrow Airport. So yeah. Chris, yeah, the, you're the man to ask. Welcome. And uh, yes, thank you for having me. I'm not sure I'm the man to ask about air traffic control, though. Um, could could you imagine Chris being in charge of air traffic control? No, no. is is the simple answer to that. Um, I, I'm not sure I even know where to start. Um, what, what was the name of that film? Pushing Tin. Yes. Yeah. Um, Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah. Yeah. Just looks incredibly complicated, incredibly skilled. Mm. Um, anyway, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, no, well, welcome. Great to have you um, on the show. Mm. No, again, thank you for inviting me. So, um, yeah, we've got um, we've got our usual format um, that we'll stick to today. Um, so, um, yeah, we start by uh, just discussing a few topical news items. And as 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 you are our guest, Chris, what have you got for us? Um, well, I, there could have been a whole number of news items I, I perhaps could have talked about, but I'm I'm going to stick with the um, issue around how much are we supposed to be putting into the UK economy and, and is this going to help with our net zero policies? Mm. Um, and picking up on the story in Professional Pensions earlier this week of the UK Sustainable Investment and Finance Association writing to uh, the government around concerns about long-term policies. Well, the fact that there's no certainty around long-term policies. Mm. And if the government are looking to pension funds to invest 50 or 60 billion, depends which 
which article you read or which number you want to focus on. And if we have this uncertainty, is that going to impact on decisions being made around putting money into into the UK economy in the way the government wants? Um, there's in the, in the past we've been driven to you've got to diversify both in asset classes and leading on to regions. So what makes the UK, if I think of this from a very much a trustee perspective, what makes the UK the attractive area mm. to invest in in this one particular issue? Um, but as I say, I, I could have picked a, a whole number of stories. But, but I think that was that's of the moment, I think. Yeah, and um, so this is talking about mixed messages from the government. Um, on the one hand, trying to encourage um, UK funds to, to invest in green projects, but on the other hand, sort of um, watering down some of that, that net zero commitment in terms of sort of mixed messaging and stuff. And I, I remember we were we, we, we talked on a podcast a few weeks back, and there was um, we were talking about a Times cartoon um, mm. at the height of a heat wave, and it was like heat wave around the world and then brain wave from a picture of Rishi Sunak um, in front of um, oil rigs in the North Sea. Um, and I think, um, you know, quite often there is, you know, the left arm of government doesn't always know what the right arm of government is doing. And I do think that you get sort of policy coordination failures, which do sort of lead to suboptimal outcomes, suboptimal decisions. And it's quite interesting that this, that this group has actually written to the prime minister um, to voice those concerns. Mm, yeah, yeah. And do we think, I mean, I guess the Prime Minister's office kind of routinely responds to things, or will they be passed to Laura Trart, do you think? Um, I think usually what ha will happen is you'll get a government response. It'll be drafted in a... a um, It'll be drafted by an official in DWP, or maybe even the Treasury, given the topic. Mm. Um, then it will go, go, go round the rounds. Um, so, but it'll be interesting to see if, you know, there is a response. Um, hopefully there will be. And it'll be interesting to see what that response is. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's the joined upness, isn't it? And we've come back to this so many times. Um, we've normally been talking about joined upness in pensions policy, uh, let's say exclusively. Um, mm. But the, the sort of the line between investment and uh, pensions policy as well as it is just a topic we haven't really touched on. Yeah. Um, do, we, do we think the IFS... And their um, their review is going to touch on this, or again, we sort of we don't know, do we? I don't know actually. Um, mm. I think the IFS stuff is more about outcomes and the system, but mm. yeah, I, I need to look into that. I think if if we talk about outcomes, um, you know, what's going to be the outcome of all the stuff? And let me use that word stuff that's mm. that's going on. Um, as I always say to people. I would much rather focus on two or three things and give a world-class offering than have to juggle 20 or 30 things um, where you do things in a rush, you make too many mistakes, um, and everything comes out as a mess. Mm. Um, so, and, we, and we are in danger of that at the moment, aren't we, Chris? Well, we are, yeah. I mean, it's, someone was talking to me about this. There's, there's something called the switch cost effect, which... If you've got a load of things on your agenda, but you're saying I'm only going to focus on one mm. or two, inevitably your consciousness sort of papers over everything and you end up thinking about everything. Um, so yeah, let's, 
is it too simple to say let's have a menu of things and put them in priority and say mm-hmm. we're not going to move forward until we do one or two now mm-hmm. it's probably not practical and you have to be flexible enough to to recognize that the world changes around you but oh, have we got too much on our plate Mm. And I, I, I'm, I do concern. I'm sorry. I'm concerned about some of the outcomes that potentially might come about because we have just too much. Yeah. And it's. I suppose we're we're sort of nearing the final throes of a political term now, aren't we? Um, mm. You know, and and I think that you know one of the one of the things that happens in our political and electoral system is that you know you you have a certain amount of time. Um, that it's one administration to another administration and there's very little continuity. Mm. And um, I think, you know, what we're seeing at the moment is a last roll of the dice um, by the Tories to, 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 to try and stay in power, um, to try and get some economic growth, to try and sort of, you know, build their voter base up, back up and stuff. Um, but equally, um, probably a rush to get a lot of things uh, through before the election. So there's, there is some sort of legacy there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I do just on your kind of kind of framing there, Chris. I think you know these are wicked problems, aren't they? So, mm. so, so you know, yes. the, the the if you did ask different people, they would have different priority lists, um, and they would have different solutions probably to much of that priority list. So, I guess that's why we elect you know executive governments to prioritise and tell us their their solutions. Um, and the disappointment is that that priority list and solution list keeps on seeming to shift. That's mm. the disappointment I think that the UK CIF is expressing as well. And, and if if we think about this in a pensions concept uh, context, you know, it's the can keeps being kicked down the road or has been mm. kicked down the road, um, and so it's come together all in one go, mm. which mm. yeah, it sometimes can be helpful. Um, but I, I will come back to my point that there, there is just so much out there at the moment that we need to mm. think about and, and how do we in, incorporate this into the way we work. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so Nico, um, you know, mm. uh, lots, lots going on as Chris says, um, what have you got for us? Yeah. So I saw, uh, this morning, uh, so we're recording on the Thursday, the 31st. Um, so the news in the financial times, which I think is based on a press release from Cleargas and, uh, Chris Sear. Mm. Um, and the headline is UK pension schemes could save 2 billion in fees research fines. Um, so I think essentially taking the clients of Cleargas, um, and, uh, looking at the kind of, distance in fees between those paying the least and those paying the most for comparable products. Yep. Um, and then I guess doing some sort of multiple of that distance versus the whole industry and coming up with this sort of two billion pounds a year figure. Um, so there are some quite big, big numbers in here. So, um, and, and interestingly, so I read this this morning, uh, I don't know, 7am UK time, mm. and uh, the numbers were much less scary. And I've looked again now, and they've, 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 they've all had zeros removed, I think. Um, <laughs> so, so removed after the decimal place. So um, uh, I wanted to highlight the passive equity fund, so the, the, just to dictate straight from the uh, FT article. Clearglass identified one manager running a passive equity fund that had a 17 basis, so 0.17 percentage point gap in ongoing charges between its best and worst deal. Um, so, you know, that is astounding. It's um, huge. That could be, a, I guess, a company, a, a, a trust paying like 
one, two, three basis points, and another one paying like 18, 19, 20 basis points for the, for same, the same for the same passive fund. That's how we read it, I think. Blimey. Yeah, and that sounds um, like somebody's not negotiated hard enough. Well, I also wondered if it could be a misunderstanding. Is it a bundled versus an unbundled scheme? Is there is there something like that going on? Um, Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, um, I'm just working on what you've you've said. Sure. That, that seems a rather too big a gap. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and you were saying as we were warming up, Chris, that, uh, talking about the investment consultant. Maybe you can expand on that for us. Uh, yeah, I mean, all investment consultants have deals with certain asset managers. Um, so, you, in comparison, you may be getting a bad deal with one asset mm. manager compared to to another. But in the round, do the good deals outweigh the bad deals? If mm. I can use that term, that that's. Mm. A, terrible term but if i can use that mm -hmm. um and if your investment consultant isn't giving you a good deal it's perhaps it's time to look at your investment consultant mm -hmm. yeah yeah and, and our investment consultants like is it quite sticky um or do schemes um you know shop around quite a lot and review um the investment consultants is there, is there a churn there uh there should be there's a requirement to review your consultants on a oh sorry your advisors yeah. Yeah. on a on a regular basis yeah. um sometimes it's difficult to move away from a consultant mm. because you lose the history you lose you know the, all the good stuff they've done for you but you yeah. should you should constantly be challenging um your advisory team because isn't that what you're supposed to do mm. yeah yeah, I mean, there, there, there is churn. Um, I guess the it, there's a lot of market segmentation you could talk to in terms of where that churn happens. Um, my sense is the smaller schemes are probably not reviewing them, their investment consultants, potentially their asset fees. You know, there's a lot of, I think, scale plays into this at the governance level as much as anything else. Mm. Um, when you're right at the top, you know, they might have more than one investment consultant. Um, so there could be a competitive process for different mandates to say, okay, so your research on this is out, is better and maybe you've yeah. got bigger scale and you're able to get us better fees. Um, and indeed, right to the, you know, beyond that, the, the in-house team might be doing the negotiation themselves. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, I think if you kind of look at by size, you'll, you'll see a big complexity of different solutions coming, coming in here. But yeah, the, the churn does happen. If I if I look mm. at my my client portfolio, we've um, we've changed consultants uh, twice in the last well, twice in the last twelve months. Right, right. Well, certainly yeah. since the LDI crisis, anyway. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just to pick out other statistics, um, so it says one point one six percent difference in charge for multi-asset targeted absolute return funds. Now, I, 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 again, I don't know whether that's the same manager with, you know, over here I've got a fund, let's just call it free, and over here you're paying 1.16%. Because 1.61% mm. um, just as a fee sounds expensive to me, but um, let alone as a gap. Yeah. Um, so I guess the, the the other piece that comes in here is just consumer duty and value for money. I am trying to segue back to the topic of our podcast. So. <laughs> uh, 
But, you know, so we're now, we, the fund management industry, are now sort of obliged to think about the fees we charge um, and whether they are value. Yep. Um, and so maybe these kind of uh, differences in deals between for the same product for different clients will, will, will start to be under threat. Um, I think it's, it's difficult to justify such big differences. Um, there may well be differences in marginal cost for smaller schemes than larger schemes, um, but but not like orders of magnitude. I wouldn't have thought. Yeah. So um, yeah, possibly that these new duties will uh, will change the the playing field a little bit. Yeah, those numbers seem high. Mm. Uh, without my having seen the the research or the article you're referring to, they just seem high. Mm. Yeah, certainly do. Certainly do. So I wanted to uh, pick up mm. on um, something that we just were discussing with. I think it was Louise Davy, uh, Nico from the Pensions mm. Regulator, and the Regulator uh, released a blog or a comment piece or something um, that did the, the rounds in the news um, a day or two ago, um, which was all about uh, climate reporting and the scenario analysis, um, mm. and that you know. I think you raised it as a news article um, that, mm. you know, um, there are concerns um, that, you know, some of the climate scenario reporting and analysis, um, you know, was flawed. Um, and, you know, talking about, you know, the, the, the questioning the validity of published outcomes, um, mm. which under seriously mm -hmm. underestimated the, the financial risk from climate change. Um, yeah. I think the regulator was saying, look, you know, this isn't a bad thing in itself, yeah, because ultimately it's a, it's about learning, it's about, it's an opportunity to take stock, look ahead, um, you know, collectively we can look forward to to what needs to be done to, to 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 improve the reporting and to improve the metrics, um, but it's yeah, it's just another thing that adds to Chris's to do list, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a long to do list. Is um, <laughs> I mean, on on that point. Yeah. Do we have to start again? Is perhaps the question I ask, or mm. do we have the right information but we're not presenting it correctly, or are we not asking the right questions, or is the information there and we're just not asking for it? We're asking for something else. Mm. Um, is it all of the above? Is it all of yeah. the above? Um, so. Yeah, I, I think it's probably the opportunity to pause, take stock, mm. and think about are we doing the right thing? Because if, if questions are being asked, surely we have a duty to to go back and look at it. Yeah. yeah. And Nico, you did some uh, work for DCIF on this, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, so uh, obviously, so that was on TCFD, so the um, the kind of meta report that contains yeah. uh, scenario analysis. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's the first time that pension schemes have done them. Um, it's deliberately set up by the regulator um, and the government to be kind of ahead of disclosures of companies. So there's uh, there's a lot of kind of learning and muddling through that's going on. Um, but you know, the headlines are it's incredibly complicated and very confusing to compare. They're not comparable between schemes. Right. Um, so um, you know, and particularly scenarios. Um, you know, they are there's there's probably 
one standard kind of measure, um, which I think, because uh, we're not the BBC, I can say is probably MSCI's uh, climate value at risk, um, where I would say probably 80% of the schemes, 75% of the schemes that I looked at kind of were using that. Right. Um, I don't know that that has any meaning whatsoever. I'm still waiting for someone to explain to me what, you know, 5% means versus 20%. Um, and it's really worrying if you're publishing data and statistics that nobody can explain. Um, and then there are probably another, yeah, every other scheme had another way of talking about scenarios. So all the way from emissions uh, and temperature rises through to, um, so um, uh, what are they called? Uh, WTW had like a bespoke climate risk thing Scottish widows had a bespoke climate risk thing which was different there too in fact um everybody's got new acronyms mm. um and I don't think it's at all useful um that would be my kind of summary yeah. I don't think 2050 is a useful decision frame for anyone um possibly except the government and people building nuclear power stations um I think investors don't think in 2023 about you know, 27 years away. Mm. Um, they might well talk about how, what steps do you need to do to be ready in the next four years for something 27 years away or, you know, things of that ilk. Um, but yeah, so decision useful can't be for me 2050, but the regulator and <clears throat> the framing of TCFD uh, has kind of picked up and indeed the Paris Agreement has picked up this kind of 2050 date. Um and then a lot of the commitments are around 2050. So, you know, we're sort of doing nothing for the next 26 years and then lots of lots of busy work in 2049, right? So <laughs> I, I think there's a big, a big load of issues with it. Um, and I don't see how any of it is decision useful. Um, you know, particularly, you know, is this is a small number good and a big number bad? Um, I, you know, nobody can actually explain what these, these CVAR numbers mean to me. Right. Uh, and I have got a bit of statistics behind me, so I'd hope I'd and finance. Yeah. So I hope I'd be able to grapple yeah, with you, it. You, you are an actuary, Nico. I am an actuary. I still pass as one. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, no, I, it, it is not simple. These, these sort of now, these outputs aren't simple, and that's just not helpful. Um, so, so yeah, so, work, more work needed. So so so, Chris, you know, like, what is what is the discussion around the trustee board's table about this these reporting? You know, is it is it is, it, is it our trustees struggling to to get to grips with it? Um, um I, yeah, but I, I don't think you can just leave it with trustees. There's also the asset managers that you're trying to get the information from. Yeah. Um. So I, I think there's a struggle. It's becoming better because you're having to go through the process um not everybody has got to go through the process yet mm. but um it's it's difficult trying to figure out what you need to collect and are you collecting the right data and, and as, as i said before are you asking the right questions for mm. the right data and interpreting it correctly um you you'd hope it would it would all sort itself out and sort itself out very quickly, um, but it will it, it will take work. And in the priority of things, where do you put this? Yeah. Um, and you'd like to think it's high. You know, there is a there is a climate emergency, whether anybody you know the, there's cli climate denies or not. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the climate is changing, and it's quite obvious it's changing. Mm. So you know, sh we should be doing our 
a piece to to help with it but how you do this through reporting um mm. it's still very much a moving piece i think and, and and am i right in saying i think i am that you know the the what trustees have to report on yeah or schemes have to report on is ahead of where company disclosure actually is so it's it's almost been done you know um uh, it's, it's always right. back to front yeah i was going to say something else um <laughs> <laughs> yeah and is is there some duplication of work being done here um yeah. and is it better to try and combine the two i don't know that what that thought's just popped in, into my head mm. um it's a better way somehow to to join these things up yeah yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't you, know we also shouldn't lose sight of the fact that tcfd was written for companies yeah so it's really about essentially scope one and two emissions so that's the emissions that you 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 create yourself or kind of buy in through your electricity so um it's asking companies uh to i uh, uh, sorry and then also the um, physical damages of climate change affecting your business so it's asking companies to be prepared for a uh, you know mitigation and b adaptation to climate change um so that's all very sensible. It's very sensible to say to companies, hey guys, you know, governments have agreed this sort of thing. Okay, there's a lot of politics left um, to settle exactly how to do it. But, you know, the climate is changing and governments have noticed. Um, and so you need to be, you need to have a plan. Um, but to draw that a level up and ask investors, you know, asset owners, asset managers, how to transition their portfolios then you're into a whole different world of questions. You know, do I transition my portfolios or do, does the market do that? Does government do that? Um, what is my actual role? You know, if I sell something over here, then I'm still exposed to the fact that climate is changing around the world because this is a global commons. So just the beliefs as to what the investor should be doing versus a company, are just a, it's a big problem. It's a big, mm -hmm. big problem. Um, and they're just on the scenarios themselves. You know, as soon as you look out into the future, you can. I, I was talking about this uh, the other day. You could possibly draw a, a kind of four box plot where you know climate, climate goods, climate bads, um, the economy goods, economy bad, and you could probably find people with beliefs that fit into each of those four boxes. Yeah. So, so a world where you kind of go, uh, the climate is is absolutely fine, but the economy is terrible. Well, there's a lot of people who say that the transition is more expensive than the actual damage of climate change. You could find people who say um, that there could be a terrible climate, but the economy is absolutely fine. I think if you believe in AI and robots um, and, you know, mega wealthy billionaires being the driver of, of, of the economy, then you could probably find yourself in that camp. You could go around that plot and find sort of economic rationalisation and beliefs in each of them. And fundamentally, that is the scenario that we're talking about. So... That is why there's like literally a 100% difference in expectations of GDP in a four degree world. Mm. Because some people are like, well, the GDP will be driven by robots and we, robots don't need CO2. Um, and other people are like, no, you know, humans are a big part of the economy and uh, will <laughs> remain so in 2050. So uh, I, I, we're asking a lot of trustees to kind of resolve those beliefs or to delegate them to people who are not talking about those beliefs, they're pretending it's just modeling and science, and it's no such thing. It's, 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 it's a lot more subjective than that, and a lot more sort of society-based. Yeah. Um, and, you know, 
it's not cheap to work your way all the way through those big problems. And as Chris says, you know, there's, a, there's going to be a priority list here. Yeah. Um, so maybe we just need to be told what the answer is by the government. Um, maybe, and, and avoid all the nonsense that's out on the mm, internet. There, there are yeah. some... I've suddenly, well, not suddenly, I've, I've come to the conclusion the most entertaining thing on the internet is people who put forward conspiracy theories. Um, and, and there are some crackers out there. Um, I mean, my, my two particular favourites at the moment, and these aren't to do with climate, I'll, I'll say that now, but um, why do we need gravity? We got, okay, we, got, we got by okay with it before Sir Isaac Newton invented it. Um, that was one of my favourites. And, and, and yeah. also gravity-associated... Um, why is it the birds can fly, but the oceans stay where they are? <laughs> I just um, sorry, I I, I, complete, I, complete aside, but they are very entertaining. I, so did, I did think you were going to go down the flat earth at one point. Yeah, yeah, we've uh, had that on the podcast yeah, we have. Yeah, I mean, but, again, sorry, just very quickly, there is one video of uh, a flat earther proving that the earth is flat by cutting holes in things and holding them up and getting a colleague to stand there with a a light and to prove that the earth is flat they will cut these holes and they're 17 feet apart i think and then the, the guy is 17 feet back with the light and and you should be able to see them hmm. they cut the holes and they can't see the light and the guy at one end said hold the light up so we can see you and he holds it up and it proves that the earth is curved mm. because right. he's held it up at the the right height anyway it's, it's all, mm. yeah flat earthers are they're entertaining if you, <laughs> yeah consider it really pure entertainment there's a, there's a very interesting uh, documentary on netflix about flat earthers where you have a bunch of scientists who say you know this is this is great we've got a whole bunch of people in that community and not by any means that community as a whole but you know people who want to do experiments and okay prove to themselves that they're wrong right that's ultimately kind of where you get to uh, but this is the foundation of the empirical scientific uh, method right uh, the issue is that they reject those results and go oh no i've got a measuring problem or you know there's a dip on the earth of actually it's downhill it doesn't look like it's downhill but it must be downhill mm. um so yeah i think you know the world is really complicated and enabling people to 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 be inquisitive around that and to conduct experiments is great um, i mean I can, I can be a real pedant and say if something's downhill <laughs> then surely the earth isn't flat but that's just me being completely pedantic anyway. yeah i don't know how flat they think it is um <laughs> I, i'm calling order to this i'm calling yes, order please. To this. so um chris Tell us a bit about yourself. How did you get into pensions? I don't think it will come as any surprise to say I fell into it by accident. <laughs> Pretty much um, everyone says that. <laughs> I, I think everybody but two of your yeah. Yeah. so far have said that. Um, my first time working in pensions was um, I applied to the civil service board for a role and ended up being placed in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. So uh, mm -hmm. as I've joked to Darren, if he was in the Treasury, if I'd stuck around, we'd have been work neighbours. Yeah. Um, I joined and, and was promoted very quickly and was given the opportunity to go into the superannuation department. That shows how long ago it was. Mm. Um, 
stayed there for a few years, uh, moved on to a private family business in the city, mm. part of which imploded, if I'm perfectly honest. It was associated with the meat trade, and it was around the time of the foot and mouth disease. Right. Um, now, I'd sort of fallen in love with the job, if I'm, if I can say that. Um, the breadth and of things you got involved in uh, when I was at the Foreign Office, it, it just struck me as being something really interesting. Uh, I moved to this company and say it imploded. And in a very bizarre way, the fact that there was all these difficult things going on, it was fun. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought, I'll, I like pensions. I'll stay in pensions. Um, but I'll try and pick places where there's something out of the ordinary going on. Um, I moved from that company to a company called Sears. Okay. Um, so a big retail conglomerate. Um, part of Sears was Selfridges department store in Oxford street. Mm. Um, I moved over when Selfridges was floated off to create shareholder value, which I still don't understand what that really means, but, um, <laughs> I, I set up all the pension arrangements and also share save arrangements. I helped in setting those up, um, stayed there for five years moved on to comet the electrical retailer which i have to say mm -hmm. by far and away was my most enjoyable job it's a fantastic team um, both internally and externally and i mm -hmm. that was the start of where I, I really started to meet some really fantastic people mm -hmm. um at comet we set up what was at the time the biggest stakeholder scheme by numbers not by value at all. Yeah. Um, but I got to work with some great people from, at that point, they were all with Punter Southall. So it was people like Damien Stankham, who I know mm -hmm. you've got coming on the podcast shortly. Uh, Lee we Hollingworth. Simon yeah, Davis. Yeah. yeah, so Damien, Lee Hollingworth, Simon Davis, who has done many roles, including head of DCA on, he's now at Fidelity. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um and then, yeah, people like Tim Banks and Ian Buckin and Andy Dixon um, and Stephen Lefley at Standard Life. Yeah. Um, it, it was just a really, really enjoyable mm. uh, five years or so. Um, but I'd gone as far as I could go and took a job with Pearson, the publisher, for a year. Oh, and then moved, yeah, and then moved from there to House of Fraser for a couple of years. And then headhunted into what was the British Airports Authority, um, based at Heathrow Airport. And once all the airport sales had gone through, and Heathrow was the only thing left, uh, Heathrow Airport. Um, mm. I left Heathrow early 2021, thinking I'll look for another pension manager role. And I was given the opportunity to become a professional trustee, and I've enjoyed it ever since. That's a, a that's an amazing um, variety of companies that you've worked for, Chris. Um, mm. I'm just thinking, uh, where was the best freebie from? You know, was it? The, <laughs> you know, did you get TVs from Comet? You know, did you did you get stuff for your missus? No, uh, no, Selfridges. You know, free flights from Heathrow. You know, what's the, what's the best uh, freebie you had? No. Oh. Well, the discount 
at Selfridges was very, very handy. Uh, yeah. Can I say? And it was, it was quite a shock to my wife when I left to say, no, I'm not buying you any Clarins or, or Clinique stuff anymore. I'm sorry. You'll have to make do with boots numbers. Um, I'm, I'm not, I have to say, I'm not a great one for freebies. Um, I just, just get on with the job. Indeed. Indeed. Um, and it's it's the people I miss most, as opposed mm, to you know the best freebie I've, I've got. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you you've also been um, quite involved in industry associations um, over your career and done a lot of the PMI. Um, you know, like, yeah, and I just stepped, just stepped down after my ten year period. Um, yeah, PMI, PMI is a great institution. Um, and and what were you doing there? Uh, well, I was a member of the advisory council, right? Um, and then towards the end, uh, I chaired the trustee group, um, which supports professional and lay trustees. Yeah. Um, I became a director of the PMI's pension scheme, um, and was asked to join the board for the last couple of years. Um, so. There's a lot of stuff that's going on, a lot of things. I should stop using the word stuff. There's a lot of things. <laughs> the technical technical term. Term. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's a lot of positive things that the PMI are doing yeah. and, and want to do. Um, and there's there's a great team, great internal team headed up by uh, Gareth Tancred. Yeah. Um, we've got some really big ambitions about they want to do. And the advisory council, yeah, was a, was a, was a great thing. Yeah. So yeah, I loved I loved my time at the PMI. Um, also involved in another organisation called Amesy, yeah. which uh-huh. yeah. I, I managed to get Darren involved in. He did. Uh, so I've, I've been doing that since two thousand and seven. Now, wow, um, yeah, it's a fantastic thing. Mm. Um, and I think again that what they're what they're trying to achieve is, I think it's really really good. Mm. Um, yeah. And so for people who don't know that, that's the Association of Investment Manager Sales Executives. Am I right? Yes, which okay. is which is for education, best practice and networking for those involved in asset management, sales, marketing, client relations and uh, consultant relations. Mm-hmm. I've almost read that from a script. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, and I'd, if there's an award, I've probably judged it at some point. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd been, been involved in a number of things. Yeah, um, deep deep down, I'm a geek, <laughs> yeah. um, and I and I love doing all of all of that sort of stuff. So, so were you ever a spy at the Foreign Office? <laughs> uh, I've signed the Official Secrets Act. So you can't time. say. Um, you can't I, say. Uh, I signed the Official Secrets Act in what was the original um, Scotland Yard. Okay, that mm. was one of those. Mm. Anyway, but yeah. no, it's the simple answer. No. <laughs> Pen- hey. Pensions and spies. I'm not sure how that fits. <laughs> well, if we bring that in, I'm sure there's a few people around the industry we could suspect. That would be, uh, that's a new game for us, Darren. It could be, couldn't it? Spot the, spot the spy. Spot the spy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant right order order um <laughs> oh, so, 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 I, just before we move on Dan, i want to know about locations so did you were you in the selfridges building on oxford street um, yes 
Uh, both, so is there like both... a beautiful top floor or is there a, like some grotty office that they neglected for years and years? Um, <laughs> let me put it this way. I was on the top floor and mm. I had three waste paper baskets in my office. Um, <laughs> not because I generated a lot of paper. It just simply was when it rained, it leaked. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so a lot of money spent at the front. Yeah. Not an awful lot. A lot of money was spent at the back. That may have changed, um, yeah, but yeah. you know that's that's how it was at the time. Um, but Oxford Street as a place to commute to must have been quite quite weird to sort of come in past all the shoppers and then go to work. Uh, yes, uh, not as weird as some of my commutes. Um, you know, Ten years, well, fifteen years if you count Comet sitting in a car driving around the M twenty five, adding to the carbon emission problem. Hmm. Um, that was. I won't call my strangers commute in, in a <laughs> funny way. Um, I miss it because mm. uh, it gives you the opportunity to sit in your own space and you can mm. think about things properly. And or, you li- can speak. Or, li- or listen to great podcasts. Or listen to great podcasts, yes. <laughs> so, um, where are we yeah. going, Nico? Uh, Chris, what does value for money mean to you? I look value in two ways for this i mean there's there's your definition of value for money which you which you've talked about and then and as i've spent so long in an in-house role mm. i think about how does what does value mean to the members because mm. I, I think there's there's two definitions in all of that um also being on the 32nd podcast and I'm not sure I can add anything new to what other people have said, <laughs> but um, for me, it, it, you have to measure value at, at the, the outcome, mm. surely, surely, because that's the only point you can put value on 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 things, um, and you can do your best in the interim. But value for money has to be you you provide the best outcome for members that you possibly can. The problem from the members' perspective is that there is so much information that's put out there and we're trying to engage them and we continue to try to engage them. Um, but the more and more information that you have to give, I think disengages people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I keep saying on a regular basis, somewhere along the line, we've lost sight of the plain English campaign for pensions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, We just, just providing ever more complex information which might be right for some people um but my experience of talking to to the end user is well i I don't really care about all of that just tell me this um Mm -hmm. because i want it simple and i want it straightforward um just just give me that and i don't really care about all this other stuff that's just noise to me Mm. i just want something simple tell me how much i'm saving where it's going um and what am I going to get at the end? So my definition comes at this from two angles. Yeah. 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 And, and do you think, um, what's your observation in, 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 in what's going on politically um, here? Because, you know, we've talked quite a lot on the podcast about the focus away from cost and charges and onto value. Um, and, you know, that's something the industry has been asking for, for, for quite a while. Um, it's now politically more 
um, in in the government's interest to push this, not least, um, you know, some of the stuff we were talking about earlier in the podcast around productive finance and the like. You know, do you think that your definitions um, or, or, or your, your 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 thinking about this, um, you know, chimes with what the government's thinking, or do you think they've got different motives? I suspect they've got different motives. Mm. Um, I, my issue about value and value for money is, is it the right term mm. to use? Because people value things in different ways. I mean, you've, you've talked in the past about cars and fridges. You know, you can yep. have the same conversation about Sky TV packages or, yep. you know, the, the TV that you've got. Um, but people make value decisions every day. You, when you go into a supermarket and you want to buy some breakfast cereal, do you buy own brand or do you buy mm. something else? There's a value in there. Um, where do you fill your car up with petrol? Do you go somewhere that's the cheapest or do you go somewhere because it's more convenient for you to go there? Mm. Um, so there are odd things. I'm, I tend to look at things using a quality measure. Do you think you're getting quality mm. for your money? Because value can sometimes mean the cheapest. The cheapest mm. doesn't always work. Yeah. Paying a little bit extra for something means that you think you get quality. Um, the problem we've got is that we've focused so much on costs in the past. Is it difficult to get people's mindsets out of that? Yeah. Remembering that, and we're not talking here just about pensions people, but we talk about you know the commercial reality of you've got an employer who's sponsoring this. Mm -hmm. um, what's what's the driver to say to them? Well, if you spend a bit extra, you'll get this. Mm. Um, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you'll just look at the bottom line. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. So, so you know, the, the the value for money push. Obviously, members can't choose pension schemes, not not for the where their active contributions go to. So do you think employers are kind of talked about enough by the government? Do you think they are engaged in this? Obviously, you've worked for some big names, and I'd hope they're more engaged. But just, just give us a sense of what an engaged employer looks like on this sort of value for money conversation. That's a difficult one because mm. I think it depends on who you're talking to. Mm. With so many people now excluded from pension arrangements for tax reasons, mm. um, sometimes their focus is elsewhere. If you think about this um, within the budget of an HRT, if I can, because mm. most pensions people sit with an HRT. It's not all, but, but most. Um, you're fighting with other members of the HR team for part of the HR budget. Mm. Mm. And there are some things that can be delivered quickly. And so you can be seen to make in an impact immediately with some of the reward issues that are, are reward opportunities that are there. And sometimes it's difficult to present a rationale for why pensions should, should get more. Mm. Um, I suppose one, one of my hopes is as DB gets to the end game and schemes are self-sufficient and there isn't really any monies that's being paid in by the employer. An employer has a pensions budget at the moment spread probably between DB and DC. 
if mm. the DB issue is removed, does mm. that mean you can have more of the budget spent on DC? Um, I totally just so. increase uh, shareholder yeah. value. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I suspect a lot of that money will will go elsewhere. Mm. Uh, if mm. not, all of the money will go elsewhere. Um, that is such a sweeping generalisation, though. There are mm. people who are going to going to be doing something because they've they've got that extra, extra cash available um but there will be some who will say well it's it's i don't need to spend that money elsewhere it's an addition to the bottom line so from, from your experience at um at heathrow and, and 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 some of the other companies you've worked for chris um you've obviously you know been doing the pension stuff but you've worked closely with the benefit teams more widely um and you know where, where does sort of pensions in your experience sort of rank in the hierarchy of what employees actually value and and, and do we do enough as companies and as an, as an industry to actually talk about the positive aspects of pensions and you know the fact that it's important to save for your retirement and build up a decent pot The simple answer is it depends. Yeah. But that's. Um, I mean, I'd, if if we go back to to my time at Selfridges, you know, there was a waiting period of three months before you could join the scheme. Um, but there was also a waiting period of three months before you could get your discount card. Right. Um, <laughs> and at the end of three months, there will be a huge long queue at the HR <laughs> saying, "I need my application form for my discount card." And I'd go just wander around. You know, Thoughts on joining the pension? Not interested. I only want my discount card. Um, so that's that's one end, and the other end would be, you know, my experience at Heathrow, hugely unionised. Mm. Um, the trade unions really understood and valued the work that they'd done to secure a fantastic deal. Um, and if people opted out, some of the trade union reps would go and find them. Find them. What mm. are you doing? What are you doing? Look, we've worked really hard for this. You really need to think about this. Go and go and speak to somebody about whether or not you think that's the right decision. Um, mm. So, yeah, there's a spectrum. It really it, it depends on what the ethos of the com company is. I mean, pensions and fashion department stores don't necessarily go hand in hand. Um, some mm. people found it really important. Um, it, it, it just depends how much you uh, you really want to push want to push it and make a, a real effort to engage with people mm. and start talking yeah. to people yeah I've got a similar case study to the uh, discount card versus pensions um, so uh, I could say when I was at Towers Watson we had a client who was a very large UK employer who I think closed their defined benefit scheme at the same time as introduced the ability for you to buy holiday. Right. And I think there are a couple of other benefits changes. And then we set up a helpline for the you know, very large employer to take uh, take the strain of uh, all of the staff calling and going, you know, I've got all these questions. Um, and I believe we expected, you know, we're closing the DB scheme. I believe we expected a lot of and trained all the helpline on all the technicalities of the DB scheme. And as you can imagine, there's, there's a lot of training that goes into that. Mm. Um, and 80% of the calls were like, so when does this holiday thing start? Can I, <laughs> can I do that this year? Or it's like 1st of January, guys, 1st of January. Yeah. So it's and um, yeah, you know, the value we, we of the two benefits yeah. each other um, 
dramatically yeah. more saved on the pensions than sort of gained on the on the holiday. But that was where the focus was. There we go. Sorry, Chris. Yeah, but we we need to be realistic about mm. all of this because people have got a limited budget for for spend. Mm. Them, mm -hmm. They'll value certain things. They won't value others quite as much. Um, we have had the issue for goodness knows how long. You know, my, my pension is my portfolio of buy-to-let houses. Um, <laughs> that's that's the only thing I'm interested in because I've seen how uh, Homes Under the Hammer and whatever Sarah Bean's <laughs> TV programs are. Um, and during a period of low interest rates, you know, good luck to them. Um, whether that's going to change or not, I don't know. Um, but I always come back to a simple discussion I had with with somebody. You know, if you if you look over the generations when pensions really started, if I if I look at my dad, for example, mm. um, my dad had pension deducted from pay, and he went home and he paid for his utility bills and he paid for his TV license and that was it. You know, now we've got more things to spend our money on uh, that we believe are essential and we, we must have. You know, we, we must have a, a new mobile phone. We must have a contract that allows us to do this. We must have a Netflix subscription. Um, mm -hmm. So we're, we're trying to battle against a lot of other things that are more immediate and you're, you're satisfied more immediately with. Um, but I think we just need to be realistic that we'd love to do more. We certainly would love to do more, but people just have limited budgets. But and you've just got to try and educate them to make the right decisions, but the right decisions in the mind of one person may not be the right decisions in the mind of another. Hmm. I just I just wanted to pick up, Chris, on your role as a trustee in, in some of this stuff. And... Um, you know, yeah. obviously you're there to represent members' best interests um, and all of that. You know, how, how do you go about thinking about that, putting yourself in members' shoes? You know, do you, do you try and spend time with members? Um, you know, what is the relationship, do you think, um, between trustees and the actual membership? Um, schemes? Some, sometimes it's a bit removed mm. um, if you are a professional because, you know, there, there isn't that link to the uh, to the membership yeah. it's it's really useful for lay trustees to to be involved i think it'd be a sad day if lay trustees um are no longer involved um but it's becoming increasingly difficult to find people who want to put themselves forward as trustees yeah. be they member nominated or or company appointed um to my mind i i'll always come back to my background as a as an in-house pensions person you know I've, I've had to walk the same corridors i've had to sit in the same um offices i've had to sit in the same staff restaurant park in the same car park as these people mm. um i've sort of had that connection with them and that drives a lot of my thinking of you know, surely it is all about the member mm. but i sort i sort of understand the well not i sort of understand i understand the, the sponsors issues um, I'm not sure if everybody has the benefit mm. of that, mm. um, but certainly you know, it, it drives a lot of my thinking. Yeah. It drives a lot of the way that, that I do it just simply be because 
you know, if you didn't do the right thing by members, you can go and find your car tires slashed in a car park. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, that, that's, that's a terrible thing to say. We, um, we, we won't even ask whether that ever happened to you, Chris. <laughs> no, it's no, it's, it's it's never happened. It's never, you know, I, I, I just I've had to walk with these people. I've had to talk with these people. I had to engage with them constantly. Um, mm. And that's not necessarily because I'm trying to explain pensions to them. Mm. It's just because, you know, they're colleagues. Yeah. And I look at things from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's answered your question. I think, I, I think it, I think <laughs> it, it does. Yeah. I, th I think, um, you know, like there's, there's different ways of doing this. Um, but I think that part of, part of trusteeship is to draw on your previous experience and stuff, I would say. And I think, um, you know, how, how you described how you sort of go about making some of the value judgments that you have to have, to have and the experience that you've got, whether it's um, mm. through talking to colleagues or whether it's doing the employer side stuff as a pensions manager, you know, I think, um, you know, balances things quite nicely. Can I, can I just do... Go on. I was just going to say that some people do value pensions, but I mm. think we have to be honest. I've had conversations with people who have said, Chris, I, I get everything you're saying. I understand everything you're saying, but I just simply can't afford it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and once you have that that conversation, it becomes very difficult to say, well, yeah, but you should be doing this, you should be doing that. People have got immediate issues. And I think we just need to re um, recognise that you know, people have different priorities than pension. Yeah. As, as great a thing as it is, and as great as it adds to, you know, the benefit of society i think sometimes sometimes we just have to be a bit realistic about about yeah. things yeah. yeah absolutely sorry nico i cut across you no 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 um no that, that was a uh, uh, it's really important we can't we can't lose sight of the cost of living crisis and the pressures on people's finances i think that's really important and, and even um, and, and even um before you know like cost of living crisis is mm. is sort of in the in the eye at the moment um but, you know, we have got quite an unequal society when it comes to income and income distribution and stuff. And I think it's sometimes too easy for people to say, oh, we can't sort of do anything about pensions now because of the cost of living crisis. Now, fundamentally, you know, um, you know, getting contributions up to the level that us as pension professionals would like to see them at, you know, it's going to be a huge ask on individuals and a huge ask on employers. Um, you know, in a cost of living crisis or not? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and that's um, that's why that's why I sort of come back to you know, if if we fix the DB problem, and there's more for DC, does that mean sometimes you'll you'll get contributions without mm -hmm. actually having to contribute yourself? Will there be some sort of like minimum safety net? Um, mm. It's a possibility, but whether that happens or not, I don't know. Yeah. So, so, so I wanted to ask about consolidation and trusteeship. Um, so obviously part of the kind of value for money agenda in DC is to close small, lower value for money schemes. Do you think kind of trustees in general are sort of on that page or are they, you know, they, they don't want to be turkeys voting for Christmas at the end of the day? Just give, it, give us a sense of that balance. Uh, a purely personal view. This, is, this mm. doesn't represent the view of my employer or any other association that I'm, that I'm part of. Um, a purely personal view is that I think a lot 
of trustees think and quite rightly are doing a great job mm. and, and therefore they're, they're looking out for the best interest of members i mean there are some schemes small schemes that are incredibly well run mm. there are some mm. schemes that are large and you, know, you can question a few things that happen um i think consolidation at some point is inevitable um mm problem with that is you lose the link with the sponsor and the members it just becomes something that's all at arm's length and how do you go about encouraging people to engage mm. unless yeah. you really want to do something yourself and that takes time effort and resources yeah um i will come back to consolidation is perhaps inevitable mm. Mm. I've, I've asked the question of others um at what point will you say you being the regulator at what point will you say enough's enough if you're consolidating um never really had a sensible answer never really had an answer if i'm honest um but that will be the driver at some point when someone says enough's enough and i, I without the intervention of the regulator perhaps we can get in there there is so many things that we have to do are we getting close to the point where an ordinary ski will just say, oh, "It's too much problems for me." Yeah, just it's just consolidate, just get, just do it. Is that, yeah, yeah that's, that's, surely that's part of the tactics, isn't it? Right, the government, uh, the, the, the government seems to be very reluctant just to say, "Right, okay, if you're a scheme of this size, you're consolidated." It, it, it doesn't want to be directive. Yeah. Mm. Um, so you know, is 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 the game in town just to put burden after burden after burden? Um, to get people to sort of come to that decision themselves? Uh, I think so. Mm. Uh, the cynic in me will say, inevitably, that's going to happen. Yeah. Mm. Um, but in the interim, we're going to do the best job that we blooming well can. Mm. Um, but, yeah, inevitably, perhaps it will happen. And and, and and you've talked a bit about DB and, um, you know, that how employers might i don't know if they ever have a bit more money to spend on pensions they might put it in the dc or you know what whatever but yeah um, so we, it's we, an aspiration yeah <laughs> aspiration yeah yeah. Hope, but, yeah but but i just want to interested in your views as a trustee and from a fiduciary perspective on cdc you know can you see cdc ever taking off do you think um you know trustees you know, have the capability, the knowledge to be able to, to run such schemes effectively and get the sort of tra inevitable trade-offs that there are. I mean, quite public trade-offs, uh, certainly from a member's perspective. You know, do, do you think they, you know, they have the capability of getting them right? Do you think trustees want to see CDC developing? Trustees are employers, because uh, I think there's two different aspects to all of this. Um, I do wonder if a CDC model can operate on a single trust basis in mm -hmm. a way that Rommel are doing it. I mean, yeah. I can understand, you know, if you are a huge employer, you can get the scale to make it happen properly. If you are a small to medium employer, I'm not quite sure how the pooling can really work. Um, I think it's, as Adrian Bolden, I think, said on an earlier podcast of yours, it's it's something to add to the mix. Mm. I'm 
not sure it, it will work effectively unless it's part of a master trust model mm. or some sort of consolidator model. If not master trust, some form of consolidator model that we haven't even thought about at the moment. Mm. Um, because I think that's where you can properly pull the risk and properly pull the costs. Back to scale. It's it yeah, it, it all comes it all comes back to sound. I've, I've heard arguments on both sides mm. to say this is a really good thing. I've heard some people refer to CDC as a Ponzi scheme, which mm. I'm not quite sure I'm going to agree with that one. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But um, I, I think it's an interesting solution. I think mm. it will develop over time. Um, the raw mail way of providing CDC, I think, is different to how we could probably think about the theory of a, a CDC scheme working in mm. practice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's going to come back to big is better. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Not, not least because it gives you the resource and you know, the capability to actually do things. Well, I'm coming back to my new story to push down the fees for push down the fees. Product, yeah, right? absolutely. Um, and, and at that point, we've pretty much done full circle, Nico. We have, we have, yeah, we're chasing our tail as ever. We are. Uh, the trains are getting into the station. I think uh, people are sat in the car park trying to trying to trying to see if they should dive into work or listen to the last couple of seconds. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, Chris, that's been awesome. Awesome to have you on. Very interesting. Thank you so much for for giving so much of your time um, and insights into your your career in Selfridges and Comet and uh, all of that. Um, yeah, and and, and, and and the fact that you're a spy, that you had to say no. <laughs> you, you know, you, you, couldn't have you, answered, you couldn't have answered the question in the affirmative, so. You're, yeah. you're, you're starting a te terrible rumour there, Darren. <laughs> I am, aren't I? <laughs> if Darren disappears, yeah, blame um, Chris Power. Yeah, well, we've we've not even got onto the concept that Darren and I may be doing a road trip in the US at some point. Oh, yes, oh, I may open the door and push him out. Yeah, we, we're not allowed. To, we're not allowed to talk about football, Nico. Um, so we can talk about American football. Yeah, so uh, both um, both both Chris and I are huge American football fans. Okay, um, and um, this is something we've been we've been plotting, haven't we, Chris? Yes, uh, it's my. 50th next year your 60th and this 60th year so we're thinking like you know wouldn't it be great to um you know go and see the miami dolphins in florida wow you know uh go and see the raiders in las vegas um see, now, we, it was let's go and see the dolphins in miami it, and then suddenly it, it was Darren's like... extended it to do a road trip <laughs> completely across the u.s <laughs> Wow, and anyway. you support and you support Seattle, don't you, Chris? So uh, yes. yeah, we get get so up to Seattle, Miami okay. to Seattle. Yep. Heck of a road trip. <laughs> uh, yeah, blimey, and, via and Los, what, Los Angeles. That's uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, at that point, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if we're still going as a podcast, I'm looking forward to you finding reception once a week and to, reporting to, to, back on where you are. Um, as you kind of sit somewhere on Route 66 or whatever it is. <laughs> yes, but at the, at the moment, this is this is more talk than yeah. planned. So, um, but we should definitely we may, do it. We well, may I'd, get I'd, we may get around to it. I hope I'd love so. to think you could you could get at least one of those games in. Yeah, um, it'd be a bit amazing. Uh, brilliant. 
Well, look, let's uh, let's close there for for this week. Darren, what have you got coming up? What have you got coming up? Um, yeah, just to just to repeat what I said last week. I'm working with DG Publishing. Um, thanks very much to Brian and the team for giving us the pod when we're there. Uh, but working with them on their private uh, public pension summit. Um, which takes place at Penny Hill Park on the 21st or 23rd of November. Uh, you can find out more details on their website. Awesome. Um, and, yeah, I've got my TCFD uh, webinar for the for the actuaries coming up on the 19th of September. Um, so I believe that's gone live in terms of booking, uh, but I haven't done anything on LinkedIn yet. So, um <laughs> some stage I'll manage to promote that, but I think the actuaries are promoting it uh, uh, themselves. So that's actuaries.org.uk is their website. Um, and then, uh, yeah, tomorrow will be the last day of the elections for the uh-huh. council. Um, so maybe next week. So we've got tomorrow. Uh, so on the day this comes out on the 1st of September, we've got a, um, a an emergency council meeting. Um, and then the, um, what do you call it? The AGM where either I'm announced or not as having, won the election to, to be on council is the 6th of September, which I think is Wednesday. So by the time we next speak, Darren, maybe mm. I can give a bit of an update uh, on those things. But um, so, so lots am I, going on over the summer. So, so an emergency council meeting, um, yeah. to, is this to try and push something through before the new council comes in or before the elections are completed? Um, Seems a yeah. bit odd. It, it is a bit odd. So, um, yeah, the short, I'll try and do the short version of the story. So, um, the 194 people wrote in to object to a decision that they made in council in June, which right. was meant to be the last council meeting. Uh, under the charter, essentially, um, the the objection obliges, if you have more than 50 objections, it, the council is obliged to kind of reconsider whatever was, was objected to. Um, and then... Yeah, I think as someone standing uh, and who has kind of vocally objected to this um, and potentially been elected by people who objected and are expecting me to represent them, then I would hope that the new council is the place that that considers it. Um, But I understand the first question that council is being asked, the old council is being asked tomorrow, um, is whether they should be the ones considering it or whether uh, it kind of goes into the new council. So, so. Yeah, we shall see. Indeed. We shall see. Indeed. Lots of uh, lots of engagement from actuaries in yeah. their, their membership body, which is great. Um, but kind of on the back of some, let's call it miscommunication, I think, um, from from council and the executive and the presidential team. I don't, right. I don't think there's been kind of great like lines to take and thought through kind of how to speak to the membership over these things. So right. uh, yeah, part of what I'm hoping to be elected to do is to. Kind of, kind of help out on some of those things and just get people a bit more member led and member focused. Perfect, perfect. Well, um, good luck with that. And um, you. Will, will we will we know next this time next week when we do the podcast? We will. Yeah, we can, we we will. will. Excellent. So we can um, raise a glass with uh, Damien, who's our guest next week, Damien <laughs> Stankham uh, from Barnet Waddingham. So looking forward to chatting to to Damien. Yeah, fantastic. So until then, um, Chris, thank you so much again for coming on. You've been a great guest. Chris. Thank, thank you. you. Um, no, thanks again. Thank you for having me. Not at all. And so, yeah, until next week, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me and Chris. And it's goodbye from them. I'm showing my age again, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs>